I want to begin with just a, a word about this series that we're currently in that's focused in on the power of God. And, and I want to try to make sure that we have made the connection as to why this series is so important and what it is that kind of led us uh, to emphasize God's power. We, we, we aren't doing this just for the sake of being able to study and consider an attribute of God or a characteristic of God. But if you've been with us for any amount of time, then hopefully you know this is essentially kind of what we've identified as, as our heartbeat as a church, our, our prayer as a church, right? That, that we pray for God's power to be unleashed in our lives, in this church, in this community, in this world, so that every tongue, tribe, and nation can come to know and proclaim the saving work of Jesus Christ. That's, that's our prayer. And so do we really know what we mean when we pray for God's power to be unleashed? Do we really understand what that means and, and how that's portrayed. And so for us to focus in on this, this series, this story of Moses interacting with God at the burning bush to see how God reveals his power is a way to awaken us and to enrich our prayers and to understand how that same power can work its way out in our life, in this church, this community, in this world. That, that's where we're going through it. And so think about some of the things that we've emphasized since we started this series, right? We've talked about how power is in fact a gift but we can see that it can be amused. When it's, when it's left in the hands of humanity, it can lead in corruption, it can be abused, it can be uh, oppressive. And so we wanna avoid those temptations, those, those temptations that can lead to an abusive manifestation of power and trust in the way that God's intended it, which is a flourishing power, right? A power that leads to creation, that leads to freedom. And so we see these things juxtaposed next to one another uh, in the story of Moses, and, and in particular, Pharaoh in, in Egypt and the corruptible power that we see there, whereas the flourishing power that God is beginning to reveal. And so part of what we've tried to emphasize that I want to make sure we understand when we pray in our own lives is that God's power cannot and will not be stopped, right? It has declared the ultimate victory. Now, there are times where we don't see it. There are times that we don't understand it or perceive it, but we can rest assured that God's power is moving at just the right pace in just the right way, and it will reveal itself at just the right time. His power cannot and will not be stopped. We can see that his power is relational, right? It's not distant. It's, it's not a power that separates us. It's one that draws us in, and we see that in the fact that God hears. He hears the cries of his people, and in so doing, he sets an example of how we should be ambassadors of that power ourselves, that we also should listen to the cries of the vulnerable around us, right? That we need to take comfort and also model the fact that God hears the cries of those who are hurting. We, we saw how that power was relational. We've seen how it was holy, right? That he reveals this power in a, in a miraculous manifestation of this burning bush. And, and God reveals himself in so many different ways. But in that first revelation, we see this declaration of holiness, that this is an uncommon power that reveals an uncommon God who calls us to live an uncommon life. And so we want to, to live differently. We want to acknowledge the uniqueness and the majesty that God carries. And then last week we saw that when we have the opportunity to see that what God is gonna do is a manifestation of unparalleled power, and we get to that moment where we question, right? When we question whether or not we're capable of participating in it or if God's even capable of doing the things that he said, that he gives us that assurance by the revelation of the divine name. Right, which is essentially one of the main messages of all of Scripture, that God is with us. He always is. He is not a God of yesterday. He is not a God that was or a God that will be. He always is. These stories and this representation of God is not some ancient truth. It is true today. And that should influence how we pray. 
that should influence how we go about our understanding of how his power can work itself out in our lives. That's why we're going through this series. And so I hope and I trust that it is encouraging you, it is enriching you, and it's challenging us, not just individually, but corporately as well. And so I'm excited to continue in this series today. We've got a couple more weeks of this series. And to begin on our message today, I I want to uh, play a quick game with you, a quick quiz. You know I like to do these sorts of things. When when I was younger, my sister and I, we loved movies, we watched movies all the time, and one of the things we would always do is, is quiz each other with quotes. We would quote a movie and we'd see if we could stump the other person, and, and they would try to guess what movie it was, and we'd always try to pick an obscure quote to see if they couldn't figure it out, which was really hard because she and I watched a ton of movies and, and knew a lot of quotes. And so uh, since it's Oscars, the Academy Awards are tonight, um, anybody excited about that? I'm not either. It's okay. Either way, I felt like we should acknowledge it in some way. Um, I'm going to take a twist on this game that I used to play with my sister. I'm going to read to you a series of quotes from a well-known movie. And I'm going to see how long it takes you to know which movie I'm quoting, okay? And so you don't need to shout it out, but once you think you know the movie, just, just put your hand in the air, okay? And, and I'm going to start with the more obscure quotes first, and then as I move forward, it'll get more and more familiar until hopefully by the time I finish the last quote, everybody knows what movie I'm talking about, okay? And if you don't, we're going to pray for you, okay? So let's go with quote number one. You're right. I am a coward. I haven't any courage at all. I even scare myself. Okay, got a few people. Quote number two, as for you, my galvanized friend, you want a heart? You don't know how lucky you are not to have one. Hearts will never be practical until they can be made unbreakable. Okay, a few more people. How can you talk if you haven't got a brain? I don't know, but some people without brains do an awful lot of talking, don't they? Okay, getting a few more people, still see some people that don't know what it is. This is where it gets a little bit more obvious. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Lions and tigers and bears. Oh my, I'll get you my pretty and your little dog too. Toto, I don't think we're in Kansas anymore. Everyone's hand should be raised. Okay, but the most famous quote of all, let's say it together, there's no place like home. Right? In 1939, The Wizard of Oz erupted onto the scene of American pop culture and has never left, which is why you can finish so many of those quotes and every hand can be raised, right? And, and it became such a fixture of American culture for a lot of different reasons. Uh, it was th- the first colored uh, movie, wasn't it? Was it not the first? It was one of the first, either way. Um, it's a great story, it's very compelling. But to me, one of the things that, that makes me drawn to The Wizard of Oz is that central message, that, that primary quote, there's no place like home. Have you ever gone through seasons of your life where you've really felt that and you've experienced that truth? Um, I, I feel like I've had that numerous times. Even this, like this, this time last year, we had just gotten back from an incredible trip in China. It was by far one of my favorite trips I've ever taken with my family, filled with incredible memories, incredible experiences, but, but it didn't change the fact that it was still a trip, right? It, it still had jet lag. There were still times where we felt tired of living out of a suitcase and in a hotel and being in a place where we had to speak different languages and didn't understand. There were numerous times, as great as it was, where we were still like, man, I just cannot wait to be home. And you know that feeling, don't you? And then when you finally get home, just that sense of, ah, oh, that relief, that that comfort, what, what is that? What is it that makes it like there's no place like home? I, I came across an article that was written by Frank McAndrew. He's a professor of psychology at Knox University. He, he wrote this article for the Chicago Tribune about 
three years ago, and he talked about this concept of home. And, and he, he acknowledged that environmental psychologists have been talking for years that home is more than just a house, right? It is a place, but it's also objects, it's memories, it's people, right? It's, it's all of it that helps us kind of create this attachment. And, and he was seeking to try to help define what it is that makes it so compelling. And, and he observed something that regardless of culture, regardless of where you are, that more enough what what more often than not, what people tend to associate with home is that this becomes a place that represents order that, that counterbalances the chaos that you find everywhere else, right? It's, it's that refuge. It, it's that place that helps shield you and protect from all the other chaos that you find and experience in life. He even made this connection that, that there's these studies that it is probably why when children and adolescents are asked to draw a picture of their home, Invariably, across cultures, they almost always draw it in the center of the page because instinctively, this, this is what everything else revolves around. It's a really interesting description, and, and yet that truly is kind of what we begin to see is that home is a powerful, powerful thing. It represents order that protects us from the rest of chaos. It is the central component to which all of our lives should revolve around. Home is powerful. And part of what I want us to see as we prepare for the next part of this message is that God's power is leading us home. And that has tremendous implications for how we live our lives today. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter three. We're gonna continue this story of Moses and the burning bush. We've been working through it bit by bit. We've been talking about this miraculous revelation that God had by showing up in this burning bush and that first declaration of don't come any further, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. And then, and then last week we talked about God's revelation of his name and, and God gave that promise that I am who I am, the great I am, it was, a, it was a phenomenal revelation. But now God continues to give greater elaboration to Moses that speaks to where he's leading his people. All right, so let's pick up in verse 16 and we'll read through verse 22. He says, go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. And after that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed toward this people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. Now, I love this story. Now, when you read it, I don't know that it just shouts home, right? And so what is the connection? Well, the first thing that I would point out is that you gotta keep in mind the context that for hundreds of years, essentially, the, the people of God had been longing for this land. And most recently, they've been held in captivity. Time and time again, you saw that they were having to live as foreigners in a strange land. And now God is saying here in this first paragraph, this section of 16 and 17, I'm gonna bring you out of where you are and I'm taking you home. That's what I'm doing for you. He is leading them somewhere. His power is leading towards a particular 
destination, right? And so what I really begin to look at when I think about this collection of verses 16 through 22 is that when we begin to look at how God's power leads, part of what we have to remember is that God is often fulfilling promises and also continuing to foretell promises, right? It's a journey of understanding what God has fulfilled as much as what he has foretold. And that's kind of what you see being played out in these particular passages, right? So, so verses 16 and 17, if we start there, are really about God referring back to things that he has said long ago, right? If you go back even as far as to Genesis 15, when God spoke to Abram, we talked about this over and over again, when God seals the covenant with Abram that he's going to make him into a great nation and use him to be blessing, a blessing to all the other peoples of the earth, he seals that covenant. What does he say? He says, your descendants, they're going to live in a land not their own. And they're going to be oppressed. They're going to be mistreated. In fact, that same word for mistreatment is used here with the word misery. He, he is referring back to this captivity of, of the Egyptians before it had even taken place. He said, but I'm going to oppose those who oppress you, and I'm going to bring you out, and you're going to even plunder them. God spoke that back in Genesis 15. If you were to turn just one page over in Genesis 50 with the story of Joseph, Joseph predicts it again on his own deathbed. He says to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on an oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He will bring you home. What we see God saying is that, listen, I am fulfilling what has been said long ago, right? God does what he says he's going to do. And that is such an important reminder because when we truly understand that and believe it, it helps elicit trust. It, it helps us understand credibility, right? I mean, I, this is how I parent in many regards, right? Like I want my children to know that dad means what he says, right? Whether that's in an area of consequence and discipline, or that's, hey, I'm gonna be at your basketball games, or I'm gonna be at your school performance, or I'm gonna go uh, and make sure I'm home in time to put you in bed at night, whatever it is, I want them to know that, that dad means what he says, and I can trust it. And the more that they trust that, the more it's gonna allow me to help lead them through the rest of their life. That's the same thing that God's trying to do. He's trying to acknowledge, listen, I mean what I say. You can trust that what I have said is going to come to fruition. And that should elicit a tremendous amount of trust and response from his people. But think about how difficult that can be, right? Because he's revealing this to Moses. But this is a promise that was given to Abraham. Think of all the generations that existed between the two. And how many times people had to sit and wonder, has he forgotten what did he say? What did he promise? When will this ever happen? Numerous generations that weren't there for the original promise and weren't there to see the fulfillment. And that comes with a great lesson for you and me. We don't know what generation we're gonna find ourselves in when it comes to God fulfilling his plan. Right? Maybe we're lucky to be in a generation like Abraham's or Moses where we get to see a promise de declared and, and foretold or maybe we get to see it fulfilled, but there's also a chance that just like many others that were a footnote, a name, and a long list of a genealogy on a page of a scripture that sat there wondering, that could be our generation as well, right? That generation that stops and goes, is he still there? Is he still moving? Is this still true? And that's why passages like this become so important to recognize that God fulfills. God does what he says he's going to do. We can trust it and put our faith in it. Now, that's what you see in that first paragraph. The second paragraph is another level of God 
predicting, foretelling. This is what he has foretold. I love this. God spells it out exactly like it's gonna happen. Right, he pulls Moses in and he says, here's how it's gonna unfold. First, you're gonna gather the elders of Israel. They'll listen to you. Then you're gonna go talk to Pharaoh. He won't listen to you. He'll refuse this. So then we're gonna do all these wonders and these miracles and all this incredibly cool stuff. And then Pharaoh's gonna listen to you. And once he listens to you, on your way out, you're gonna plunder the Egyptians. He gives them five specific details of how this is going to unfold. Now that's pretty remarkable. That's real power, right? To not just foretell, but then have the authority and the power to ensure that what you predict will happen exactly as you say it will happen, right? Think about how that is the sort of power that we're drawn to. That, that, that we get inspired by. When somebody can predict something, but then actually assure that it's going to happen the way that they predicted it. Think about how people that don't have that power, how we typically treat them. Think about those poor weathermen, right? Weathermen. They stand up, they make, their whole life is a prediction, and they try so hard, and they fail so often, right? We'll be sitting in 80 degree weathers, and like, trust me guys, snow's coming on Wednesday, and you get your hopes up for an early closing, some sort of a snow day, kids at home, and then what happens? No, nope, we're going to school, right? And you're just like, man, what kind of prediction was that? You know, and, and you don't trust it. You kind of take any of their predictions with a grain of salt. And also, not because they fail so often, but because you know they don't have any real power in that outcome. They don't control the wind and the rains and all those different things. So you, you, you just kind of casually listen to it. Compare that to another trivial example of, of like an athlete that guarantees a victory. Right, I predict we're gonna win. In fact, I, I guarantee it. Now that, that's compelling and that draws us in because we know that that athlete actually has some level of influence, some level of power to, to help determine the outcome of that game. And so when we watch some athlete get on a court or a field and just dominate an opponent and, and actually assure this prediction that they made, we marvel at that. That inspires us. That's where we get that phrase, they didn't just talk the talk, they walked the walk. That's the sort of power that compels us. And that's exactly what God is doing. Right? I, I can predict exactly how this is gonna unfold and I have the power to assure you it will unfold exactly in this manner. And that should inspire us and encourage us. But it also should help us shape the appropriate expectations. Look at what, what God is trying to reveal to Moses here, right? Listen, initially, Pharaoh's gonna say no. There's gonna be a moment where you might question, well, where is God? Why isn't this working out? Why am I being met with opposition? But I'm telling you, it's all according to my plan. Right? He's doing it to set expectations. Don't waver, don't give up. This is how it's going to unfold. That is an incredible amount of power. God fulfills, but he also foretells. So we see this on display, and we see that that fulfillment and that foretelling is ultimately leading God's people home. He's leading them to a destination. What I wanna spend the rest of our time talking about today is how do we apply that to us? How does that influence how we live? And, and I think in order for us to really consider this question appropriately, I want us to consider the eras that we can see biblically and how God moves amongst the course of human history, right? So, so you, have, you have the prologue, right? You have the introduction, which is creation. This is how Everything gets started. You have the fall, you have the flood, you have the Tower of Babel. This is the backdrop that, that shapes every other narrative and story that we see in the scripture, okay? But after that, you kind of see three main eras, right? At least that, that I would identify. The first one is essentially Abraham to the monarchy, right? You, you've got this, this calling of a people. 
I'm, I'm gonna bring you out, I'm gonna settle you in a land, and you're gonna become a great nation. And we see that take place through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, out of Egypt. They form a nation, they form a people, and then they eventually ask for a king. You have Saul, you have David, you have Solomon, you have the height of a kingdom. That's era number one. God forming for himself a people and establishing a kingdom. But then what happens? Right, there's rebellion. There, there's, there's all sorts of disobedience. There's all sorts of wandering. And so that kingdom crumbles. And God's people find themselves living in exile. They find themselves living in another level of oppression. And they're wanting and longing for, again, somebody to come along and reestablish this kingdom. To come and bring them back home. They start looking for a savior. They start looking for a Messiah. And there are all these words, all these prophecies of who that Messiah and savior will be. And that leads us to Jesus. So you have this second era of exile to Jesus. Those longing for a savior that can come and reestablish God's kingdom. And then Jesus comes and what we discover is that God's a plan and an idea of forming a people and establishing a kingdom far exceeds anything we could have ever imagined, right? It, it, it's not just some earthly kingdom. It's, it's this ultimate kingdom that sets us free from sin and death, and it will fully be, fully be brought into existence with his return. So now we have this third era of Jesus to consummation, Jesus to the return. That's our era. And so how do we live within this part of human history, reminding ourselves of what it is that God has fulfilled and what he has foretold? Where is he leading us? And how can we trust in that power? Let, let's first talk about fulfillment. Everything revolves around Jesus. Everything. Right? Like, there is no dispute that he existed. Right? There, there is a historical fact that Jesus walked this planet our response begin was, begins with, what do you believe in him? What do you believe about him? How do you respond to this Jesus? Do you believe he is who he says he was? And that's where it all begins. And what we see when we study the scriptures, and even when you study elements of history, is that he fulfilled everything that God foretold about this Savior and this Messiah. When you consider passages like Isaiah 53, right, and we see that this suffering servant was there to take all the pain, all the punishment that could bring us peace, right? That that was all upon Jesus. And then by his wounds, by his nail-pierced hands and feet, you and I are healed. We find grace. We find mercy. To see all those things being played out for us allows us to see that all of it is perfectly fulfilled in Jesus. That when Jesus, on the third day, resurrects from the grave, when he comes back to life, shows us with certainty that death has been defeated. What we need to never lose sight of is the sufficiency of the gospel. It is everything. And it's so easy for us to find ourselves looking so far back to think that what we do with Jesus and our response to Jesus is really just a footnote of our life. Right? That it's, it's a story that, that maybe we should consider to make ourselves comfortable from time to time. It's, it's how we can find morality. It's maybe how we can find some sort of comfort. But we don't really revolve our lives around it. And part of what we need to remember is that everything that God has promised has been ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is sufficient. 
You can't earn your way into heaven. There's no sin that's so great that can't be forgiven. Regardless of what end of the spectrum you fall on, Jesus is the answer. And we need to stop looking for it in other places. That's what God has fulfilled. But what has he foretold? Where is he leading us? What are those things that he has said, now, listen, here's what's going to happen. When, when this return takes place, here's what you can expect. Have we really stopped and considered those things? That's kind of where I want us to spend the next section of this message today, is talk about at least two or three things, probably three things, that we can anticipate upon this return, and some of the things that help us see where God is leading us. Now, there are more to this list than just the ones that, that we're going to cover today, but here are some of the critical ones that I think help us understand how to orient our life today. And the first one, if I can just set the tone, is not a popular one. But we have to acknowledge it. What he has foretold is judgment. And we don't like that word. We hate that word. In fact, we do everything we can in our life to try to avoid that word. And we, we make sure that people don't feel like they ever have the ability or authority to judge us or that we should never really judge others. It's a hard word for us to ever get comfortable with, right? And so we've, we start talking about that now. We've, we've made truth relative to help give us that continual escape clause in these conversations. Hey, I'm just speaking my truth. Don't judge me, right? This is just my truth. I mean, this is a common way that we think and talk today. But the reality is, is that God in his scriptures, Jesus himself, has foretold judgment. We have to acknowledge that. I mean, think about some of these passages. Let me just read a few. Matthew 12, verse 36. I tell you that everyone, this is Jesus, I tell you everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. That's comforting. Go in peace. Enjoy the rest of your day. Careful what you say. Right? I mean, but the level of detail, every empty word you're going to give an account for. Romans 14.10, you then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. Not just for a few, it's for all of us. 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body whether good or bad. <laughs> and we are gonna stand before the judgment seat of Christ. He has been positioned to judge the living and the dead. We're gonna have an account for what we did with this life, whether good or bad. That has been foretold. What it's saying is, is that your life and how you live it matters. It matters. And your response to Jesus and how you decide to follow him and devote yourself to him matters. We're gonna give an account for it, but this also, be very careful here, this also brings us into an incredibly deep appreciation for grace and a savior, <laughs> right? Because Jesus is clear, he says, listen, this judgment ends in one of two ways, either eternal punishment or eternal life. But the reality is, is that when you read the whole of the scriptures, none of us earns eternal life. All of us stand condemned in our own sins and our own brokenness. And that's why the gift of Jesus is so incredibly remarkable, that when we give our lives to him and we follow him, what happens is that he takes all of our sin, all of our brokenness, and he gives us all of his righteousness. And that's what God sees when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. 
and it is an overwhelming response, not of our perfection and our morality, because we have none, but of his grace and his mercy. But our life matters, and how we represent our following of Jesus matters. That's been foretold, and we need to trust that it will be true. The second thing that we see here is not just the day of judgment, but a resurrection. The resurrection of the dead. Do you actually believe in it? Like when you actually stop and think about it, we, we put the word resurrection in our Christianese all the time, and we refer to it, we talk about it, and it's a comfortable part of the story, but do we really stop and consider, do you actually believe the dead will be raised? Does that, does that truth drastically influence how you live your life? Because it should. And, and yet it's such an unparalleled power, right? It's part of what we talked about last week. That, to think about that, and, and that sort of revelation of power is so incomprehensible at times, I'm sure that a lot of us go, how is that true? How is that possible? Can he, will he really do that? That's the question we ask when we confront unparalleled power. And that's exactly the question that many people were asking when Paul wrote his letter to the church in Corinth, right? They were, they were wondering whether or not the dead could actually be raised. And so listen to how Paul answers them in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. So let me break it down. If we don't actually believe that the dead are raised, then we don't really believe that Jesus was raised either. And as a result, our faith is, is useless. It's futile. You're still in your sins. If you're following Jesus just because you think it's for this life, you're to be pitied more than anyone else. Let me break that down. If, if you don't actually believe in the resurrection of the dead and you're here today, that's sad. This is a boring hobby to come to church. There are so many more entertaining things you could be doing with your Sunday morning. That's essentially what he's saying. But if you actually believe it, it changes everything. Paul continues, Christ has been raised and therefore we all will be made alive. This has been foretold. There will be a resurrection of the dead. Now, when you actually begin to believe in that sort of unparalleled power, you get natural questions. How, why, what will it look like? And so Paul continues. He describes it. How are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. I love that, right? I love that image, right? That, that our life and our bodies will be sown in dishonor but raised in glory. And how incredibly powerful and promising that really is. Here, here's the truth. Man, I don't care how great you think you are, right? And how pretty you think you are and how handsome you think you are, how strong you think you are, how attractive. We can all turn on the Academy Awards tonight and marvel at these celebrities and their, their glitz and their glam and all these different things. It doesn't matter how amazing you think you are and how much we can marvel at the body. You know what? It still is weak. And every single one of you right now, you're getting older. And your body's breaking down. I'm sorry, but it's true. Right? As great as it is, it's sown in weakness. 
it's sown in dishonor. It's this image of of a seed, right? You you have a seed, and it has a certain look. It has a certain feel. you You can sense it. You can understand it, but you plant it in the ground, and what happens? Something incredibly glorious and even more splendorous blooms. That's what Paul just described. I mean, we are gonna be sown in weakness and raised in power. That should change how we live. Now, how is that gonna happen? What's, I have no clue. I have no clue. Man, just the other day, my, my daughter was asking me what heaven's gonna be like. Those are my favorite types of questions. And, and she was like, are there gonna be babies in heaven? I don't know. Like, what, how old are we gonna be in heaven? Man, I don't know. I don't know if we're gonna be like our 18 version of ourselves, 25, I don't know. Like, all I know is that who we are right now, it's weakness, but it's gonna be raised in power. It has been foretold. Do you believe it? But when we have this resurrection of the dead, it's leading somewhere. It's not just that we have a day of judgment. It's not just that there is the hope of the resurrection, but we have the hope of a new heaven and a new earth. Consider what we have in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. That's where he's leading us, right? This is this story that's gonna take us from garden to city. Right, that, that what God has been desiring from the very beginning is not just to establish some sort of kingdom here on earth where people come and worship him in some temple. He wants to actually dwell with us. And when we are resurrected and we get these new bodies, we get to live in a new heaven, in a new earth, in a physical presence where we get to actually dwell with him forever. And in that moment, we get the hope of all these things being fulfilled, that there is no more crying, there is no more pain, there is no more death. There is no more sorrow or suffering. He wipes every tear from our eyes. You know what he's described for us? Home. That's where he's leading us. That's what his power is seeking to achieve for all of us. And it should influence every area of our life. That's what you're living for. Not not for something here in this moment, not for the the nice house, the 2.5 children, and the steady job. We're living for the world that is to come. That's how God's power begins to compel us to to live differently. His power is leading us home. So what does that look like? I want to close with a story that, at least in, in my vantage point, serves as a wonderful example. There's a story of this, you know, it's a true story. There's this young man who was born in a rural village in England. And uh, he grew up and uh, ultimately was an apprentice in a cobbler's shop, so he's a shoemaker. That was, that was kind of what he did for his career, not exactly a compelling or thrilling career, but that's kind of how he got his start. At a very early and young age, he came to faith. And he was so passionate about this gospel, he was so passionate about these promises that he taught himself New Testament Greek. Anyone else? No? Okay. So what he did, like he, 
He learned Greek. He loved the scriptures. Uh, He got older, and he realized that life is not always filled with all the hopes and dreams that culture often tries to put in front of us. He got married, and uh, shortly after uh, he was married, he had his firstborn, who was a young daughter, and she died tragically at the age of two, which was kind of a sign of the times. And as a shoemaker, you're not very wealthy. And so they lived in a kind of a perpetual state of poverty. That, that was his reality, all right? But he knew that that's not really what his life was about. He grew in his faith. He learned Hebrew. He learned Latin. He began to preach a little bit. And in his growing of his faith, he became incredibly passionate about the idea that this gospel needs to be taken to all the corners of the earth, right? That it needs to be taken overseas to new lands and new places. And so he would beg with people at that time because very few people were actually living that way. In fact, there's this one famous story of him standing up in a room filled of Baptist preachers and leaders, imploring them to to have this movement and to go and take this gospel to new places. And he was told in that meeting, sit down. If God's going to save the heathen, he's not going to consult you or me to do it. But that was no deterrent for him. He he refused to listen to to the cultural expression of Christianity. He began to to continue to live his life around these promises, knowing that God was leading him and using him for something different, something greater. And so he formed this missionary society. And shortly thereafter, he and his family, along with another partner that he he had invited into this process, they all left for India. And they began to live out this conviction, this call, that this hope needed to be taken all the way around the world. And when he got to India, you know what? Things got harder. Right? His, his uh, confidant, his colleague, left. So he was there alone with his family. He had to constantly go from job to job, trying to find some form of sustainable employment, but they just kept being moved. His son that he took with him died at the age of five because of an illness that was contracted. His wife, she had a mental breakdown and became so mentally un- unstable they had to confine her, restrain her, and put her in another area. This, this was his life. And it, it was even documented at one point that he wrote in his journal, this is the valley of the shadow of death for me. But I still rejoice because I know God is with me. How could he say that? How could he do that except knowing that this life matters? Right, that what God had said was going to come to fruition, that what God had foretold was still true, that there was gonna be a day he had to give an account for his life, that he had to, to trust that there would be a day that he'd be set free from that sort of tank, that pain and those temporary momentary struggles, that there was a destination that God was leading him to. And so he faithfully dug in and continued. And after seven years, William Carey saw his first convert. Seven years before he saw that first decision. Shortly thereafter, he presented a Bible that was translated in Bengali. He, he became an incredible influence in social reform, helping with the abolition of infanticide, widow burning, and assisted suicide. He helped in the areas of education. Uh, during his 41 years in India, he helped translate the Bible in numerous languages that are used in that part of the world. In 41 years, he never took a furlough back home. He lived as a foreigner and a stranger in a foreign land. Why? Because he knew that his real home wasn't anywhere on this earth, but in the world that it is to come. And it impacted everything about his life. Perhaps his greatest legacy was this missionary movement that took off 
after him by following his example, the way he ignited other people to give their lives in a similar passion. In fact, the mantra of his life that he's often attributed to, one of his famous quotes that really exemplifies how he interpreted the things that God had foretold and used them in his own life was he said, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Is that you? Is that how you live? See, that's a life that understands God's gonna do what he says. That's a life that understands his power, that we can expect great things from God and as a result should attempt great things for God. How would your life look differently if that was truly how you lived? What would change? How, how would that begin to unfold in, in different ways with work, with home, with family, with neighbors, to expect great things from God and attempt great things for him. How would that change our church if it wasn't just a collection of individuals thinking that way, but if we as a congregation believed each and every week, each and every day that we could expect great things from God and attempt great things for God, how would that change things? And that's the sort of life that I want us to lead. We only get one chance at this. So let's believe in what God has foretold. Let's trust that he's gonna do what he has said. Let's look at these promises and recognize that what he has described for us is a place that represents order outside of the chaos. He gives us a picture of something that should be central in our lives to which everything else should revolve around it. Let's lead our lives with that certainty, with that conviction that his power is leading us home. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And I pray, God, that we would be able to cherish these truths today in a way that allows us to truly respond in a manner that helps us to expect great things from you because you are who you say you are. Help us to attempt great things for you because we know that your power leads, God, that you do what you say. Father, we love you for this hope. We love you for this gospel. We pray that you would continue to lead us not by our own merit, not by our own strength, but that we would fix our eyes on Jesus. We would fix our eyes on the cross, and we would once again consider this amazing, overwhelming grace, and we would surrender our whole lives to it as we allow it to lead us home. We pray all these things. In Jesus' precious and holy name, amen and amen.